This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 87, Rama's Famous Genocide. Last time, Yudhishthira, now the undisputed king of the world, seriously considered giving it all up at his moment of triumph and retiring into the woods as a penitent. He raises some good questions. After all, what are we doing here anyway? In order to live, we must constantly do violence of some sort, even if it is merely getting something to eat. The trajectory of Yudhishthira's life resulted in colossal violence, and inevitably as king, he shall continue to do violence. Our hero has always been drawn to the life of an ascetic, and at this point he seems to have a good excuse for giving up the crown and adopting the life of a holy man. Of course, no one else agrees with him. After all, the world needs a king, and who would make a better king than the wise Dharmaraja Yudhishthira? But it seems the best way to distract Yudhishthira from his worries is to tell him a good story. Because by the time Narada is done telling him the story of the boy who crapped gold nuggets, the king had forgotten his cares and worries. When Narada finished his tale, Yudhishthira stood up and ordered his followers to break camp. Putting his blind uncle at the head of the procession, Yudhishthira ordered them to commence to the gates of Hastinapur. The new king, Yudhishthira, boarded a white cart pulled by sixteen white oxen. Bhima took the reins while Arjun held a parasol over the king. Nakul and Sahadev stood to either side of the king bearing fly whisks. In front of them, Dhritarashtra and Gandhari were carried in litters, while behind the brothers rode Yuyutsu, Dhritarashtra's last surviving son. Following up the Kurus rode Krishna and Setyaki in a golden chariot. This beautiful procession entered the city and proceeded down its flower-strewn lanes to the great palace. The people of the city lined the streets and praised the new royal family as they passed. With an adoring crowd following behind, the procession entered the palace, where a large crowd of Brahmins chanted blessings on their behalf. The king, in turn, handed out vast riches to the priestly well-wishers. But, in the midst of all the racket, one Brahmin began shouting at the king. While the other priests turned to listen, this Brahmin, named Charvaka, addressed the king. Charvaka said, I'm speaking for all these Brahmins present when I say poo on you, you wicked fratricide. How can you claim any legitimacy after you killed your gurus, your elders, and your brothers? The Brahmins were shocked that this man claimed to speak on their behalf. They did not like this one bit. But Yudhishthira was contrite. He said, I beseech you humbly, do not curse me, I will soon enough lay down my life. All the other Brahmins said, don't listen to him, he doesn't speak for us. Drawing on their inner knowing, they soon figured out the problem. One of them said, I know who that is, it's a Rakshasa an old friend of Duryodhana. He's disguised himself as a Brahmin. Do not credit anything he says. Then the angry crowd of priests turned on the impostor, chanting Om in unison. The primal tone killed the Rakshasa where he stood. The Brahmins then blessed the king again and departed, telling everyone of the piety and generosity of the new king of Hastinapur. Meanwhile, the royal party entered the main hall while priests and servants prepared the coronation ceremony. Yudhishthira was seated on a golden throne. On either side, he was flanked by his brothers, each seated on gem-encrusted chairs. Before him sat Krishna, and behind were seated Dhritarashtra, Vidur, and Gandhari. Containers of holy water were placed all around, and Dhamya anointed the king. Yudhishthira's subjects then presented the new king with valuable gifts, while the king gave away even more wealth to the Brahmins present. Then all his subjects again hailed their king and begged him to command them, and they would obey. Yudhishthira said, Your first duty, and mine, is to honor and obey Dhritarashtra, who is the last of my kinsmen still alive. He then dismissed the crowds and held his first council of state. 
His first act was to appoint Bhima his heir, called the Yuvaraj. He appointed Vidur to be his vizier and made Sanjay the royal treasurer. He made Nakul his quartermaster general, while Arjun naturally took over the war department. His priest Damya was put in charge of ceremonies and rituals, and Sahadev was appointed captain of the royal guards. He put Yuyutsu, Dhritarashtra's last living son, in charge of the old man's household. Having established everyone's appointments, the king turned next to the ceremonial offering to the dead, called Shraddha, which he faithfully performed for every one of his fallen kinsmen. As at all such ceremonies, vast wealth was handed out to the attending Brahmins. He then resumed his offerings, honoring every one of the fallen king's friends and acquaintances. It says that by doing this, he cleared the debt he owed them and thus ensured that they would not castigate him in the afterlife. His next task was to see to the living. His realm was overflowing with widows, orphans, and broken households. To rectify this, he distributed food, clothing, and shelter to all the unfortunates of the world. He then turned his attention to Krishna. It was time to honor and thank him for having guided them safely through the recent hostilities. Yudhishthira sang a lengthy hymn to Krishna, honoring his divinity and wisdom. Krishna was pleased with this and returned the favor, praising his cousin the king. It was now late in the evening, and Yudhishthira finally turned to his brothers. He said, For my sake, you have endured the misery of exile, your bodies have been mangled in battle, and you have put up with great fatigue, grief, and anger. So now I hope you will enjoy our victory. Rest now, and we'll meet in the morning. Bhima took over Duryodhana's palace, Arjun took over Dushasan's, and Nakul and Sahadev each took the next pair of mansions left over by their cousins. Krishna and Satyaki stayed with Arjun as his guests. The next morning, Yudhishthira saw to his servants, most of whom were holdouts from the former regime. It says that he gratified them all generously with gifts, even including, quote, persons that were undeserving and those that held heterodox views. The king also reinstated Kripa as his guru and advisor, along with Vidur. When there was a break in all this business, Yudhishthira noticed Krishna sitting in great splendor, his eyes closed in deep meditation. Just to be near him at such a moment was a blessing, so the king bowed to him and awaited his return. When Krishna finally opened his eyes, he told the king what he had learned during his meditation. He said, That great man, your uncle Bhishma, who was nearing the end of his life, was thinking of me. So in return, my mind was concentrated on him. He is not much longer for this world, so I suggest you go to him and ask him your questions about dharma and kingship. Remember that Bhishma had decided to postpone his death until the sun resumed its northward course after the winter solstice. This must have been coming up soon, so Yudhishthira agreed to accompany Krishna to his uncle's bed of arrows. Yudhishthira made a great tourist, because even now, as they rode past the piled-up corpses and broken armor of the battlefield, he asked about the historic landmarks as they passed. Krishna pointed out some lakes in the distance and said, Over there are the five lakes of Rama, son of Jamadagni. It was there that, after exterminating the Kshatriya race 21 times, that he made an offering of their blood to his ancestors. Yudhishthira said, I have a hard time believing that Rama really killed off the entire warrior caste, and that he did it 21 times in succession. After all, if he killed them off once, how could they come back again and again? Krishna's story began with the king, who also happened to be an incarnation of Indra, named Gadi. Gadi had a single daughter, whom he named Satyavati. This is not the same Satyavati who smelled like fish and married Bhishma's father. Anyway, 
When Satyavati grew up, her father married her to a powerful Brahmin named Richika. Richika was very fond of his young bride, so he decided to help her and her parents. The Brahmin cooked up a magical rice gruel and divided it into two servings. He gave them to his wife and said, Eat this one and you shall have a pious and gentle Brahmin for a son. Give the other to your mother and she shall have a mighty warrior for her son. The girl was delighted to help her father to finally have a son, so she rushed over to her mother to deliver the treat. Unfortunately, she did not pay attention to which portion was which, and she gave her mother her own gruel while she ate her mother's. As soon as he saw his wife, Rachika knew she'd screwed up. He said, You ate the wrong one. Now your son will be a fighting Brahmin, while your brother shall be a mild-mannered king. Satyavati was apologetic and begged him to fix it. She said, Come on, you're capable of creating whole universes, so there must be something you can do for me. But it seems the one rule a sage never breaks is going back on his word. If he said she'd have a mean fighting machine for a son, then so shall it be. Satyavati countered. She said, at least make it my grandson rather than my son who causes all the trouble. Richika said, ah, son, grandson, what's the difference? Very well. Your son will be a mellow priestly type, but watch out for his kid. Thus it was that Satyaki gave birth to a son, a Brahmin, who was named Jamadagni, while her mother bore a priestly Kshatriya son who was named Vishvamitra. Just as Rachika had predicted, Vishvamitra was so pious and learned that he qualified as a Brahmin despite being born a Kshatriya. And Jamadagni indeed had a son, who was named Rama, and this kid was fierce. When he finished his schooling, he journeyed to Mount Gandamadana, where he propitiated Shiva. The god was so satisfied with Rama that he granted him a magic battle axe. Meanwhile, there was a powerful king named Arjun. This king was both warlike and pious. By his generosity, the Rishi Dattatreya granted him 1,000 arms. This multi-armed king then managed to conquer the world, and then gave away the wealth to Brahmins as part of a great horse sacrifice. Sometime later, he performed an extravagant offering to the fire god Agni. Apparently, he lit a forest fire and then prevented anyone from trying to extinguish it. The fire god happily consumed woods and villages, but it also happened to burn up a sacred grove belonging to a holy man named Upava. Apava was pretty angry about this, so he cursed King Arjun. He said, Since you burned my woods, Rama will cut off all your arms. Arjun was pious enough that he would have tried to satisfy this guy, but he was unaware of the curse, so he did nothing about it. Meanwhile, his sons grew up to be haughty and cruel as a result of the curse. These perverse kids stole a calf belonging to Rama's father, Jamadagni. When Rama learned of the crime, he went straight to the king's palace, where he saw the calf wandering on the palace grounds. Either because of the influence of the curse, or his own bloody-mindedness, Rama cut off Arjun's 1,000 arms and killed the king. Arjun's sons then retaliated by returning to Jamadagni's compound and cutting his head off. Now Rama was really angry. Before his father's corpse, Rama vowed to rid the world of Kshatriyas, and then took up his mighty battle axe and headed back to Arjun's palace. It says that the Brahmin killed so many warriors that the earth became mired with their blood. In a short period of time, he killed them all. He only rested after all the Kshatriyas of the earth were dead. Then, his anger sated, Rama retired to the woods, where he stayed for thousands of years. I guess because Vishvamitra acted more like a Brahmin than a Kshatriya, or perhaps because that king was also his granduncle, Rama did not kill him or his lineage.
After some thousands of years, Vishwamitra's grandson started talking smack about Rama. He said, Rama claimed that he has killed all the Kshatriyas, but look, I'm still here, as are a few hundred others. He must be scared of us. What a coward. News of this soon reached Rama out in the woods, and he again got really mad. There weren't very many left to kill, because it says this time he strewed the earth with just hundreds of Kshatriya bodies. I guess Rama lacked the patience to hunt each and every one of them down, so a few survived the second extermination, and once more, over time, the noble race regenerated its numbers. Like a kind of plague, Rama revisited his victims the following generation, killing even the children. But still, this tenacious race again avoided total extinction, and in time their population bounced back. Rama repeated this assault again and again, such that he committed genocide on that people a total of 21 times. As I understand it, Rama then personally performed a horse sacrifice, and at the end, he handed the reins of power over to the sage king, Kashyapa. Remember that all this took place a long time before even the events of the Mahabharata. These figures, such as Vishvamitra and Kasyapa, appear to be semi-divine sage kings. Kasyapa's caste is still unclear to me, but he seems to be acting like a king, so perhaps he's another honorary Brahmin, like Vishvamitra was. To get a sense of just how primal these characters are, both Vishvamitra and Kasyapa were numbered among the seven proto-sages, called the Saptarshis. Kasyapa was a progenitor of the Devas, Asuras, Nagas, and all of humanity. With his wife Aditi, he fathered the famous Adityas. And with his other wife Diti, he fathered the evil Daityas. Both of these wives were daughters of Daksha, whose sacrifice we heard about in episode 83. As soon as Kasyapa took power, he ordered Rama to leave his lands, so he might preserve the remnant of the surviving Kshatriyas. But since Kasyapa's realm constituted the entire planet, Rama didn't have many options for his exile. Fortunately, the ocean stepped up and created an island especially for Rama to keep out of the way. Thus, Rama retired to an island in the sea, and Kasyapa retired to the woods. If he really was born a king, Kasyapa certainly didn't have the instincts of a king. As soon as he left the scene, anarchy broke out over the earth. The Kshatriyas had been decimated and scattered, so there was no one to keep the peace. The lower castes of Shudras and Vaishyas got uppity and started marrying the daughters of the priestly caste. Lacking protection, the earth quickly descended into oppression and chaos. The spirit of the earth then appealed to Kasyapa for help. She reminded him that a few Kshatriyas still lived, but they were disorganized and demoralized. She identified the ones in hiding, or who had been raised by bears, and begged Kasyapa to train them and place the earth under their protection. Krishna then finished up the story of Rama, saying that Kasyapa granted the earth her wish, and installed these remaining Kshatriyas as kings of the earth. Yudhishthira was duly impressed with the might and wrath of Rama, and he added the detail that he had heard, which is that many of the scattered remnants of his ancestors had been placed into hiding and been raised by cattle, leopards, bears, and apes. By now, the procession had finally reached the site of Bhishma's downfall, where he still laid, resting on his bed of arrows. At this time, the Sarasvati River ran through the field of Kurukshetra, and Bhishma lay near the riverbank, surrounded by holy men. As soon as they neared that hollowed spot, the party dismounted, freed their minds of superfluous thoughts, and greeted the rishis, the chief among them being Vyasa. The Pandavas hung back while Krishna and Satyaki approached Bhishma, who seemed like a fire about to go out. 
Krishna asked, How are you holding up? I hope your mind is still as sharp as before and that you are not tortured by the pain of your wounds. You are the wisest and most knowledgeable man of our age, and your self-discipline is unmatched. Who else has the strength of will, while in perfect health, to live without female intercourse for the whole of their life? And now, even though you may choose the moment of your death, still you endure the pain of your injuries in order to stay in the world of the living. Bhishma listened to Krishna's praise and then greeted Vasudeva in turn. Then Krishna said, When you leave this world, all knowledge will expire with you. That is why we have gathered here today. We seek to learn from you. Your district here is wise, but its learning is clouded by grief, so please help straighten him out. Bhishma said, But why do you come to me for that? Look at me, I'm all broken and dying, my mind is fading, and you are God incarnate. You possess all knowledge, all wisdom, and all power. You could fix Yudhishthira in a second. I'm a nobody compared to you. Krishna said, Don't let your pains be an obstacle. I'll take away all your discomfort and bring back your wits. Even more, I grant you celestial vision and the eye of wisdom, so that all knowledge will be available to your recollection. Then, as the Rishi sang hymns to Krishna, a heavenly shower of flowers fell around Bhishma. By the time this procedure was over, the sun had sunk over the horizon, and the sages got up to pack it in for the night. Then the royal party also took their leave for the night, mounted their cars, and returned to the capital. I'm going to stop here for now, because the conversation that begins on the next day literally fills volumes. Yudhishthira wants to tap every last drop of wisdom from his uncle, and the result is truly massive. Approximately one-third of the epic is filled with these teachings, and I don't see a whole lot that's worth including in this podcast, so I might need some time to work my way through it and find information worth reporting back to you. I'll be sure to keep you posted, so keep an eye on my blog, mahabharatapodcast.com. Thanks for listening.